from Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. I'm Mark Quanstrom. And I'm Tara Beth Leach. And it is our privilege to have with us our theologian in residence, uh, Beth Felker Jones. Always glad to be with y'all. Oh, and we are continuing our conversation uh, about what it means to pastor, uh, the challenges we face. Uh, the last two episodes, we talked about uh, my work at Northern and my work at College Church. Before that, we gave you an update on Tara Beth. Uh, let's start there. Any t- any update? Are you still on your honeymoon at your you know, church? Oh, boy, am I on my honeymoon still. Um, yesterday was just one of those Sundays Another Where one. It, well, you know, people lingered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lingering church is my kind of church. I um, was chatting with someone today from Chamber of Commerce, doesn't go to our church. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said, tell me about why your church is special. Tell me about your programs. Is it is it the programs? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I could talk to you about programs. I could talk to you about the music. I could talk to you about the okay preaching. Um, but I said, that's not why Good Shepherd is special. Okay. It is the people and the way that they linger because they love each other. And yesterday it was just, I mean, people lingered and lingered and lingered and lingered. and Sweet. It's just, well, it's a sweet time. So we had um, our kind of annual meeting during the worship service where we give a finance report and everybody votes on it. We had a good year financially, which was nice. And then we always, we have a potluck afterwards. Mm. And you always wonder, are people going to stay for, people don't do potlucks anymore. Potlucks right? are fantastic. But... And I'm a millennial. I love potlucks. Well, you know what? The college kids love the potlucks. Oh, they yeah. always stay. Yeah. They don't have to go eat the sure. industrial food at the Give school, Give me a good right? Midwestern casserole. And so as a pastor, you're always wondering, is anybody going to stay? I mean, is anybody going to bring enough food? Are we going to have food? And we always buy a bunch of chickens, so people just bring the side dishes. And at potlucks, there's always the green bean casserole, right, with the bacon stuff on top. And there's always a grape salad or something. So, but I mean, everybody stayed. We ran out of seats. It was absolutely amazing. So, and so the lingering... And the fellowship really do characterize a church mm-hmm. more than its programming. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, <laughs> however, with that said, oh, so you're still on the honeymoon. Still on the honeymoon. Still on the honeymoon. Yep. Okay. Still on the honeymoon. All right. So, uh, but with that said, um, not churches can work us over. Yeah. Churches can give us our time. Would you know anything about that? You know, I might know a thing or two about the underbelly. Church. Uh, but I'm thinking that uh, most pastors underappreciate, or is that the right word, or underestimate mm-hmm. um, the capacity of good followers of Jesus Christ to um, misbehave. How about we say it so that way? They misbehave. Yeah, we over-idolize um, what we think church ought to be. And I went through that disillusionment for sure. I mean... You know, part of my story with Pasadena was up until that point, I thought that the church could do no wrong. Wow. And the church for me had been my safe space. You know, I became a Christian um, and the church was just always safe and happy and loving. And I went through such a period of disillusionment in Pasnaz, um, in Pasadena, when I learned that the church can be brutal. 
Yeah, sometimes the most pernicious sin in the world is among God's people. Mm -hmm. And so we've invited uh, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones to give us a primer. Is that how you pronounce it? A primer? A primer? It's a good British primer. Oh, British pretend you know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Whatever it is. P-R-I-M-E-R. I always think that you sound like more intellectual when you say primer. primer. It seems, yeah. A primer. And, okay. Yep. So since we're, oh, quite intellectual here. Yes. I'm, gonna say, I'm drinking uh, a tea. Of course that you are. feels intellectual. Which she offered to us, but yep. we declined. Yep. So she was quite the hospitable hostess. Yes. The primer on sin. We're going to talk about how sin manifests itself. We're going to talk about the nature of sin in general. And then we're going to talk about the particular way it can manifest itself in the body of believers. So Christians sin, evidently. They do. And mm -hmm. I agree. It's especially hurtful, I think, when we are hurt by sin in a Christian place because we hope for more, right, from right. our fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. So uh, is, uh, the fun is the foundational definition of sin disbelief or is it disobedience? I don't really like to pick a foundational hmm. definition, though that conversation is all over the place, right? And some people offer other ideas mm -hmm. as well. Um, I think... It's more interesting to look at all the many layers of sin, all okay. the many ways that it works. Uh, one foundational definition, maybe I worry it can be reductive, uh, sure. whereas if we name a lot of different things, we're, we're closer to naming the reality of sin's ravages in the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe our attempt to find a foundational definition is an, an attempt to kind of restrict it or contain it mm -hmm. and not recognize the breadth or how encompassing it is. I think that might be right. I'm just thinking out loud here. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. I sat with our, um, our confirmation kids last night and we were, we were talking about all sorts of things. And I, you know, I said when in theology, when we try to neatly wrap things and we try to button it up and, and we try to undo the tensions, that's when we get ourselves in trouble. And I think that you know, especially when it comes to the conversation on sin and brokenness, there's no neat, we can't neatly wrap this up and button it up, but there are many tension points and we have to be comfortable with the tension points. I think that's right. It's, it can be helpful to have categories so that we can sort through things and pay attention to them, but the wrapping it up is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's maybe even the case that our attempts to wraps it up into one category are themselves indicative of certain sinful tendencies mm -hmm. oh, wow. of the person who's trying to do the wrapping, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, if you want to make it all disbelief and you're sure that you're a believer, then maybe you're washing your hands. There are other ways too mm -hmm. that might work. Our tradition, the whole America, the Wesleyan tradition, not so much the Wesleyan, the holiness tradition more so, uh, talked about Sin as culpable only if it was a willful transgression of a known law. Yeah, kind of a weird aspect of our Wesleyan tradition. Um, you need it if you're going to go around claiming that you can be without sin, right? right? Uh, you, right. you need to sort of very tightly uh, define <laughs> what you're talking about there. And that's okay, I think, but it certainly isn't the fullness of what we learn from the scriptures about the ravages of sin in this world, right? Um Will, will is a complicated thing, and what a willful transgression is or isn't is a complicated thing 
And yeah, yeah. It, it was quite self-serving because you could let yourself off the hook if you didn't mean to or if you didn't know. Hmm. Right. Right. So, so I heard growing up, well, there was no malicious intent. I didn't mean to. So there's no will involved. It was accidental or thoughtless, but not willful. So we had like this first degree definition of sin. It had to be premeditated. It had to be thought out. It had to be intentional, willful. And then the transgression of a known law. So if you didn't really know all the laws you could transgress, you were off the hook. That's right. You can be off the hook. I think there's roots there in medieval Catholicism, really, um, where the system uh, in the Middle Ages insists that you have to be able to codify all the sins so that you can be properly absolved for them. Correct. Um, which means that the really bad sins are the ones that you do purposely right, right. in this certain way. Right. Um, and again, that's something to think about, but it can be a real way to let ourselves off the hook for lots of things. Now, if you're Lutheran, you're just confessing sin all the time. You're confessing sin, and you're just always going to have that disposition. And so we just need, you know, it's it's we need a ton of grace. You need it if you're and Lutheran, you get off the hook every week. I thought Luther set you free from all that. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> every week. That's why we take communion every single week because mm -hmm. it is God's delivery system of grace. That's why you know the prayer of absolution is so important for us. Um, that's why this. That's why sacraments are so important for Lutherans. So there's a confessional component to your liturgy oh, uh, in yeah. your church. Oh, yeah. Well, Every week. So in the, high in the liturgical churches, there is that still. But I think in the popular evangelicalism, there's hardly any room for confession. Mm. Yeah, even in our contemporary services, it's, um, it's part of our liturgy. It's something that we do. Um, and then the... The pastor then, you know, prays a, a a prayer or makes a statement of absolution, of forgiveness over them. Do the people receive that? Mm -hmm. I knew a woman in seminary, a Lutheran, mm -hmm. who talked about how this was the most important part of her week. Yeah. Um, Lutherans are very serious about it. And it, it struck me how much I don't have that mm -hmm. as a part of my week. Mm -hmm. but... Yeah, I I mean, I do love it. It's I, I'm, I am growing to absolutely... La, the more I, I dig into Lutheran theology and this this need for grace, um, the more I love it. So in our in the American Holiness tradition, a confession of sin meant you weren't entirely sanctified, right? Mm -hmm. right so right, it was evidence yeah. of uh, lack of it was a, it was failure. It wasn't indicative of a good relationship. It was indicative of a broken relationship if you had to confess sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, oh, sorry. Oh, Go no. ahead. As, yeah, in Lutherans, I mean, confession is all the time. I mean, you you know, Martin Luther was known for um, every time he saw water, throwing water on his face to remind himself, "I am baptized, wow. and I need this grace of God daily." I think in the American holiness tradition, you know, there's a beautiful thing there, there the is. emphasis on sanctification. But then what's gone wrong is what Tara Beth was saying earlier, an attempt to wrap it up neatly with rules that we can control and pull strings on if we want to pull strings on. And again, it's something you can't wrap up neatly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the critique of those who confess sin every week is it inclines people to kind of acquiesce to sin because they're going to be absolved every week. That's the critique on 
on on from those that don't want to accommodate so much sin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my experience is that is not what happens. Mm-mm. That a confession of sin inclines you to be less likely to, not more likely to. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you know, if every single week you're coming and standing before a holy uh, God, and willingly hold up the mirror in your life, uh, then that is naturally going to lead to confession, which then moves on to repentance, which then we believe by the grace of God right. leads us to transformation. Right. Well, okay, so how does sin manifest itself in this world, the doctor? Lots of ways, it turns out, right? Yeah. Um, sure, disobedience, and what was the other one you named? There's uh, a lot of classics. Disbelief. 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 Pride. Oh, yeah, cetera, pride is foundational, right? Pride's a big one, yeah. Yeah. Um, one way to think about it is that sin manifests itself in all these ways and more individually. Good. Um, but it also manifests itself um, socially or corporately. And we're caught up in sin not just if I do a bad thing, um, but in our relationships with each other and with creation and with the structures of society. Um, and all of that is inescapable, even if we manage not to will us in today. We're still caught up. Yeah, and I think that I think that is kind of uh, what I'm trying to say that that is that is underappreciated the systemic nature or the co- cosmic nature of sin mm. or sin as sickness mm. and not merely sin is what we're trapped in. I don't know. I, I can't say that we're not trapped in it, but we would be trapped in it without the grace of God. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So so this. Systems can incline us to sin. The systems can normalize it. Normalize yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, ah. the systems, it normalizes it and it becomes cultural. It becomes the air that you breathe oh. and it becomes okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, is, is it in so Christ sinless lived in a fallen world as a creature, right? And yet was without sin. So the scriptures tell us. Well, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Was Jesus culpable of the systemic evil of of first century Israel? There's a whole sort of minor debate in theology about whether we might say... Of course, Jesus is without sin. Yes, we're going to say that. But could we say he took on our sinful flesh, um, Mm. which is a way to say entering into this whole Uh. condition, right? Um, And some people worry about saying such a thing, lest it make him seem not the holy son of the father who he is, right? But I'm prone to want to say something like that at getting at the reality in which he's entered into the condition of sin in our world. Um, and when you say sinful flesh, that emphasizes um, our mortality as well. Uh, he's at ah. least in sin enough to die, oh, right? Whatever, whatever else uh, is going on. Um, and I think we must see from him what it means to be implicated in social sin without, um, in his person, being a sinner. But it's, it's a really hard thing to sort out, to tie up. I think we just know some things we have to say, and we try to live in the mystery there. Mm. 
Yeah, so he was complicit with the Roman oppression of his people by virtue of paying taxes to Caesar. Yes, I guess. Yes, no. I don't know if I want to say complicit, right? <laughs> but uh, perhaps you can be not complicit, but inextricable from. There we go. Right? That's different. There's no life. There's no life in this world without being bumped right up against sin. Uh, and when Jesus becomes one of us for our sake, uh, he's willing to enter into that, right? Um, not not a willed complicity, not even right. an unwilled complicity. Uh, but the knowledge that he will be in the mess with us. Yeah. So his humiliation included entering into the mess with us. I think that's right. And maybe the desire to say, um, no, 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 he's really something else altogether, right, is a refusal of just the basic truth of the incarnation, oh, that absolutely. he's that he's become human, right? Yeah. Well, I think we're inclined to docetism, right? Docetism that, you know, Jesus was apparently human, but really God. I think we are inclined that way, and we have to keep pushing to uh, accept the truth of his humanity Fully as God. Fully human, as God, yeah. Okay, so the premise is that we underestimate how sin manifests itself among even believers. What are some of the ways that believers are subject to sin that we are blindsided, that we might be blind to? How does sin manifest itself in the body of believers? I mean, there's no end to that question, I guess. But what would be some of the common ways that uh, sin makes itself known in in the church. I think we keep bumping up against these, you know, in the news stories, the endless uh, list of news stories about abuse <laughs> and embezzlement and evil um, hmm. happening within the church and especially among leaders of the church. But I think we also see this in the quiet little ways, um, which can wear down a person just as well, right? Um, the failure to notice another person's gifts, the kind of basic greed and me-firstness that we all are prone to when it's time to make decisions, right? Um, I was once a member of a church wherein there was an annual thing that had to be exactly the same every single year. But at one year, a pew had been moved. Have I already told you guys this no. story? A pew had been moved uh, to make space for the choir. But if the pew was moved during the annual thing, it wouldn't be the same. But the choir would be heard if the pew were put back. And a gang of thugs broke into the church at night to move the pew, y'all. Right? Like, that's a weird sin, but it's it's selfish and strange, right? Uh, it hurt the choir. It made a mess. But it was also just a way to say my feelings about this thing, right, which involve an unchanging sanctuary, <laughs> uh, are more important than anyone else's feelings about this thing. Yeah, I think, you know, when you get into the letters of Paul, mm -hmm. you can see the ways that he was constantly bumping up against um, selfish gain, yep. conceit, pride. I mean, I, you know, whatever people, um, especially in the Wesleyan tradition, like we, we get our pet sins, right? Within the Wesleyan tradition, it's, you know, and, and oftentimes it's focused on sexuality. And... I often am pushing people 
to realize that actually one of the biggest things that Paul was bumping up against um, was not about one's sexuality um, or sex or purity, but instead one of the things that he's constantly bumping up against is factions, mm-hmm. um, is, factions is Jewish yeah. and Gentile relations, is um, rich people, poor people yes, relations. Yes, rich people, poor people relationships. The pew should be there versus the pew should not be there. Yes. Who's in, who's out, yep. who's being excluded. Uh, and and so much of the letters of Paul have to do with how the family of God is going to get along and behave. And as a pastor, I feel that deeply. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like uh, parents... Um, uh, it's a parent's relationship with children in their their home who are siblings and who are fighting with each other mm-hmm. and contending for attention or contending that they're, they're i mean one of the one of the greatest joys a parent can have is having children get along hmm. right tell me more about that mark <laughs> i'm longing for it yeah <laughs> Of teenagers, <laughs> and and I don't know. You kind of have the big picture, and the children don't have the big picture, right? Yeah. And it's not that costly to them to be at odds with their sibling, mm-hmm. but boy, does the parent feel it, mm. right? The family metaphor is so basic to what it means to be the church, and I think we often think of the beautiful implications of that metaphor, right? Brothers and sisters, um, but no one can be as mean to each other as brothers and sisters mm-hmm. in certain ways, right? Uh, when you're when you're in the family and you feel sure that you belong in that church, and so you can have the pew the way you want it, or whatever it is. Right? Well, there's no no end to those kinds of examples yep. where uh, uh, where changing an indifferent thing in the church is an affront to those who have the power, right? Mm-hmm. Again and again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no end to those kinds of things. Um, but it still is. So how, how does the pastor respond? How does the pastor address what are, what are, what in the, the compromise the mission? And, and it occurs to me as I'm saying that, that one of the reasons we are reluctant to kind of recognize it is because we think it calls into question the witness of the church to the world. The church there there's there the church has to be holy or Christ's message is compromised. Right? So that's kind of there's kind of an incentive to not recognize it, to cloak it. And I think a lot of the behaviors of institutions are driven by that kind of concern. If it is revealed how sinful Christians are in an institution, then the mission will be compromised. Christ will be compromised. So it's better just to sweep it all under the rug and pretend we are what we evidently are not. As though we were supposed to put on a show about our own goodness instead of about the goodness of God. Yeah. Oh, so so maybe confession of sin is the best witness. Confession of the need for Christ's righteousness. And not not in a, in a way that absolves us from the pursuit of holiness, mm-hmm. but just as an honest honest understanding of who we are. So when the church, so I think pastors, in a desire to be the proper witness to the world, be properly missional, um, 
I think we sometimes kind of let it go or overlook mm. or excuse or explain. Um, but boy, God help the pastor who calls out sin in his congregation. It's true. It's true. In the Pew Church, uh, the pastor who was was a great pastor um, told people to stop it. But he did another thing that he did characteristically all the time, which he recognized the hurt on both sides and was able to let people know that he saw that they were hurting. Um, well, there you go. And I don't think that completely solved the situation. Right. But uh, behind that selfish uh this on either side uh, was a lot of hurt. So, um, I don't know if I, so I pastor a church that's on Olivet's campus. Do you have pews? We have pews. Mm -hmm. We're not moving the pews. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a traditional sanctuary. And if we were to put chairs in there, it just would look odd. So aesthetically the pews work, right? And, and I like pews, and it just it just would look like we're trying to make the building something that it isn't. Yeah, I like a pew. Yeah, and um, but what's interesting? So many in our congregation work together all week, mm. which is really interesting. Mm. So we have students that worship with professors and staff, and then we have people who attend college church who are direct reports to other people who are at college church. So there, and there are some people at uh, Olivet that refuse to attend college church because they don't want to go to church with those they work with, mm. which I, I understand, mm -hmm. I get, mm. right? But what, what it has done at college church is it has, and, and I have said to people who say that to me, uh, I can't come to college church because I work with those. I say, what does it say about the church that we can't? worship with those we work with all week long. And so I, I thought about um, my pastorate in, in Belva, and I thought, we didn't have to work with each other. I wonder if we got along only because we were there once once a week. <laughs> That's really pressing that family metaphor, right? To live there, to live together all week long all week and not long. just a day. Or... Well, that was the challenge of monastics, mm -hmm. insisting on living together seven days a week and loving each other and forgiving each other. I mean, it's the challenge of marriage, for sure. Um, but uh, people who gather together, who know each other well and still insist on worshiping and forgiving and knowing each other. I mean, that really is the beauty of the church, right? It's it's not the folks that's, it's not the church that of people that have it all together. It's a church of people faithful to one another, right? Um, I still think pastors underestimate and are incredibly discouraged and disillusioned uh, when believers engage in behaviors that are not becoming of the follower of Jesus Christ, right? We're, we're reaching for the good. And so, again, I think it really hurts when, when we fail. Wow. So what's the pastor to do? Well, <laughs> punish the them in the sermon every week. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, you know, that's, no. that's a temptation. It is a temptation. That's a temptation. It is that... a temptation for that 
person in the congregation who heard us that week, we are going to make the sermon all about correcting their behavior. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the temptation and not, not the way to go about it. So we use the pulpit as uh, power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We speak from the pulpit while we would never speak personally. Personally. That yeah. might be sin. Yes, that, that might, might be, be sin. That <laughs> might be sinful. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, so this is, again, um, I'm going through my, I guess, uh, you know, I'm going through a sacramental revival, right? So, but this is, again, this is where I think the table mm-hmm. is a powerful place because it is really, really, really hard to partake of the body and the blood while I'm looking at someone that I right. gossiped about all week. Right. It's really, really hard um, to come to the table and um, partake when um, I've lied to you mm. or I've done something to create mm. division. And so, you know, for me every week when we set up the communion, even before the words of institution, we'll often try to make that into a teaching moment of what's, what is this about? This isn't about walking to the table with your eyes down. Um, and it's not just a personal moment between you and God. And don't make eye contact with anyone else. But I love to challenge our people to make eye contact. Mm. Hug your neighbor. Mm. Say hi. Talk to people. Um, this is this is a, a feast where we come together. And it is the body and blood that unifies us. And so I think there are teaching moments. And this is where sacraments uh, do provide that place. Uh, you know, I think in addition to that, uh, the pastor in, in the preaching moment, um, we are called in the preaching moment to strengthen and nourish the imagination of the culture mm-hmm. of the church. Um, just as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount casts this remarkable vision of the church that Jesus believed the church could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you read through it and you think, wow, that sounds really impossible. I do think to a degree the pastor needs to call the congregation to this alternative way of living, this already but not yet vision of what it means to be the people of God. Uh-huh. And so, but then, you know, another thing I would add is, um, you know, we can model vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And when we model vulnerability mm-hmm. and transparency mm-hmm. as in the ways that we shepherd our people, um, by even in the pulpit, um, mm-hmm. sharing stories about your life where that might might, might surprise people, which mm-hmm. is a risk, you know, because you're always mm-hmm. been, uh, risking someone using that story against you. Um, mm-hmm. But then it's it's relational. The rest, the re- Monday, you know, by the time we get to Monday, nobody remembers my sermon from yesterday. Nobody remembers my sermon, but they remember the conversations we had. Mm-hmm. And... And so how are we relationally caring for the people to come together um, and care for one another? We also underestimate, I think, the enslaving power of sin. We haven't talked about that. Mm. But sin, I mean, salvation is in terms of freedom and liberation. And um, I don't, and I think we are in Pelagian America inclined to think of sin as kind of, a, a bad habit to break? A bad habit to break. I mean, yeah. uh, we mm-hmm. resolve to not sin anymore, mm-hmm. and we don't recognize the en- enslavement of sin, how entrapped we are with it. And so a little sympathy from the pastor or mercy from the pastor yeah. 
regarding the entrapment mm-hmm. that people are in. Mm-hmm. So we have a, uh, a, a senior adult pastor who uh, came out of drug addiction and uh, alcoholism and was in, was wonderfully transformed in a salvation experience, right? And so he works. We have a, we have a worship service downtown Kankakee and homeless uh, and uh, those that would probably never make their way into college church oh, come to that safe place. And um, many of them are still enslaved by addictions, all kinds of addictions. And he, he says, I'm not really a fan of celebrating recovery because 10% recover. I'm a fan of celebrating recovery after recovery after recovery after recovery after recovery. Mm. And so um, I think sometimes our expectations in light of our underestimation of the pernicious and pervasive nature of sin, I think our expectations sometimes lead us to a disillusionment that is driven more by unrealistic expectations than by the facts of the matter on the ground that we ought not to be really surprised that people misbehave. And that's just an easier way to say it. Does that make sense? I think you're right. We live in a very self-help culture, right? And um, there's always some new book about how to perfect yourself, perfect your your body, your work habits, your whatever, your spiritual life. Right. Um, and Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's a, it's a help comes from the outside, right? Um, one of my favorite quotes from John Wesley is, know your disease, right? Right. the sin, know your cure. Um, right. And he's saying sin is really, really bad. You have to acknowledge how bad it is uh, to see how deep and how needed and how not our own the, the cure is uh, in the grace of Christ. So uh, these always are these always help me so much. So you encourage people to look at each other during the sacrament. Mm. Yeah. So this not is, every week, but often. But often, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we have a we have our version of passing of the peace. We have yep. a meet and greet, right? And yep. of course, all the introverts introverts hate that part of the service. My father in law calls it the grin and grip. Yeah, the grin you and know grip. This. Right? He's such a curmudgeon <laughs> about the passing of the peace, and won't uh, do it. <laughs> yeah. So we apologize to the introverts in the congregation because uh, we still insist on doing it, right? It occurred to me sitting here, and we do it. In the, we do it early on in the service, right? And get the energy up a little bit, and and make sure everybody feels welcomed. It occurred to me sitting here that maybe the meet and greet should happen right before the sacrament. Hmm. I'm going to give that some thought. Maybe the meet and greet should be. I love that. A part of the communal taking of the sacrament. We always share the sacrament, or even right after. Oh yeah. Celebrate. Yeah. Celebrate. Um, so I don't know if, uh, I don't know how we want to wrap this particular conversation up. Maybe we just say, uh, what brother Lawrence said, and I think I've shared this here. Brother Lawrence was not surprised at the sin of the world in light of the nature of sin. He was surprised there wasn't more of it. Hmm. And his surprise was in light of how pervasive sin was. He was surprised by the goodness of people. Maybe if we had a different lens and uh, understood that sin was kind of the default and holiness was the miracle, Hmm. 
we might be more sensitively responsive to those who hmm, are less than Christ-like. Hmm. Does that make sense? I'm mm -hmm. just thinking out loud here. Yeah. I'm finishing a book right now called Why I Am Protestant. Um, and the answer is because the church is a mess. Um, I don't think my faith could survive if I were called to believe that the church is holy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm trying in that book to to reach toward saying, and that's where we see God working. Right. right. Yeah. Um, the image of the, the treasure in clay jars, right? Uh, right. Weak and broken um, so that we can see that the power is God's and not ours is central there there for me. Uh, and the clay jar is weak and broken. It's not right. worthless, um, but you don't expect it not to crack. You know? hmm. So what do we say at the end here? So we say we as pastors come with the grace that we have received. How's that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, we need it every day. And we recognize our need of it every day. Mm -hmm and recognize in everyone who would show up on a Sunday a an implicit implicit or latent confession of need, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even if they don't want to say that out loud. And the amazingness of the God who loves us anyway. A yeah. line from, can I do a line from the Methodist communion? Liturgy? Do it, do it. I don't know if it's just ours. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. Mm. Mm. I love that. I love that. Steadfast love of God. So I guess this is a call for pastors to not be surprised, uh, but always be gracious yeah. at the way sin can manifest itself in the local congregation. Yeah. Amen. Well, that was a great conversation, uh, Doctor Doctor Beth Felker Jones. Thank <laughs> you for sharing with us and and reflecting on, on the impact of sin uh, within the local church and pastoral ministry. And as always, friends, we're so grateful um, for the time that you take to lean into this podcast. And if it encouraged you, share it with a friend. And uh, we love engaging in conversation with you. So please, um, any time you write to us, please know that we do read it and we love your questions and they encourage us. And yeah. so until next time. Uh, we believe in the work that you've been called to do. Uh, we've all been called to do. It's the We understand it as the most important work in the world. And we just encourage you to remain faithful to the God who has been faithful to us. Mm -hmm.